Welcome to the New Sphere Podcast. Today it's Forrest Galante. Uh, well, if you're new for the New Sphere Podcast, welcome. This is the show where we interview spearfishing experts, authorities, and characters from around the world. Today it's Forrest Galante. He's a host on Discovery Plus and Animal Planet. He's a six time world record holder for spearfishing. He's a wildlife biologist and tracker. Uh, he's a wild food forager. He's got his own podcast called the Wild Times Podcast. He's featured on Joe Rogan numerous times and geeked out on all different crazy wildlife and stuff. Uh, really interesting dude, really vibrant personality. I really enjoyed this chat. So uh, I think I've said really like 15 times in the intro, so apologies for that. Hey, a um, couple of quick shout outs. Andrew Chadwick uh, sent 20 bucks to the Noob Spiro uh, PayPal. He said, hey, it's my payday and the Noob Spiro gets me through work. And he just sent in 20 bucks. If you want to do something similar, um, there's a couple of different ways you can support the podcast. You could go to patreon.com forward slash noobspiro and join 50 other patron legends supporting the Noobspiro podcast on an episode by episode basis. There's three levels you can support it. I uh, really appreciate that. And thank you. Massive thank you to the 50 patrons um, helping empower the podcast. Um, if you want to try another way, you don't like Patreon, go to noobspiro.com up into the give back menu. And there's a buy us a beer section there, a couple of different ways to give. But hey, I'm not here to big money from you guys as usual. I just want to share the spearfishing stoke and lifestyle. Let's get into this interview. Forrest Galante, boom. Neptonics was founded in 1996, making trigger mix in a barn in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Solid gear that works was their founding principle, and it still rings true today in every pull of a Neptonics trigger, in every snap of a Neptonics band, and in every whiz of a Neptonics spear gun reel, singing with the power of another big fish. Got a great deal. You can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off anything and everything at Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. Save 10% off any order at Neptonics.com when you use the code NOOB10. I can't wait to get into today's episode, brought to you with proud partner, Adreno.com.au. The Noob Spiro Podcast has been partnering with Adreno.com.au for more than 100 episodes, and these guys are awesome. They have uh, huge spearfishing mega stores all over the country. You can shop online or in store. Use the code Noob Spiro whenever you spend more than $200, and you will automatically save $20. That's right. Use the code Noob Spiro online or in store when you spend more than $200 and save 20 bucks. I love these guys. I remember the first time I bought a spear gun at adreno.com.au down at the Wollongabba store. And Adreno have been a huge part of the excitement that I have about spearfishing. Check them out at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpero to save. Guys, welcome back to the Noob Spirit Podcast. Wikipedia says Forrest Galante is an American outdoor adventurer, television personality, and conservationist. He works in the field of wildlife biology, specializing in the exploration of animals on the brink of extinction. Forrest, you've done what many of us outdoor types aspire to. You've created a lifestyle, doing what you love, getting dirty, eating crazy shit, learning new stuff, and you've managed to just be yourself doing all of it. First of all, well done. And secondly, tell the rest of us how you did it. Yeah, thanks, bro. I uh, appreciate that that heck of an intro, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, I that's <laughs> a long story, and spearfishing is actually a big part of it. But um, I I wouldn't be very good at being somebody else. I can tell you that much. So I'm good <laughs> at being myself, and uh, I, I guess I'm just lucky that you know my interests, like many of I assume the listeners to this podcast. Uh, my interests align with stuff that people are fascinated in, you know, and, uh, spearfishing is a really big one of those. And, and what I'll tell you, you know, I, 
I'll chew your ear off for hours telling you how I got to where I'm at. But long story made very short, one of the ways that I did get sort of into the public light and able to to make these television shows that are about, uh, you know, wildlife and the outdoors was from a handful of news stories that went pretty viral um, that were so that were affiliated with my spearfishing, one of which oh, wow. was catching one of the biggest lobsters that the state of California has seen in many years. And I caught it mm. and then I couldn't bring myself to kill it. So I, I took it down to the local aquarium in Santa Barbara because it was so big and impressive and survived in the cooler overnight. And then I, I put it in the aquarium and three weeks later, I, uh, I went and picked it up and dropped it off in a marine preserve at the California Channel Islands. And, oh, uh, cool. Yeah, it was fun. I, I gave him this ridiculous name. We called him Albert Gerther. And uh, <laughs> we, filmed, <laughs> we filmed this whole thing like on my iPhone just for fun. And this is long before I was doing media. Yeah, um, yeah. It was just for fun. And, and I, I like put that out on Facebook and it went totally viral. And another time we were diving at Anacapa and my buddy just happened to have, which is one of our channel islands that I could see out my window over here. And uh, my buddy happened to have his GoPro recording and he caught me perfectly saying how hammerheads are not aggressive and don't be a, don't be a pussy or whatever I said. <laughs> and then we hopped in the water and this hammerhead tried to eat us for like 10 minutes straight. And uh, he caught it all on GoPro and that went viral. So long story short, you know, I owe a lot of my, my sort of media credentials to a couple of YouTube-ish videos that went viral from spearfishing. Awesome. Well, I'm cheering you on, man. I love watching it. I like listening to you. I've, I've, I've followed along on the journey for quite a while. I wasn't actually aware of your podcast that you record with your mates, which is the Wild Times podcast. I have yeah. been tuning in and listening to that and absolutely having a blast because you guys like – you, you don't there's no holds barred it's like br- <laughs> like brutal comedy and like you know taking the piss out of sometimes sensitive subjects like i watched one about like manatees or something this morning like and then you guys like were taking the the, the piss out of the the response to the the dying manatees and stuff and right. uh, i like how you just you're just exploring issues in a really interesting way with your mates and uh and having fun along the way it's good Thanks, man. Yeah, Isaac, I mean, we, you know, the world is a pretty serious place and there's a lot of doom and gloom, especially in the the space of like what we call ecophobia. But, you know, the world is ending global warming, volcanoes, hurricanes, tsunamis. It's page turning. Yeah. I mean, it's so dull to hear another the world is ending sort of cry. Mm. And so what we do is, you know, we're, we're three, I wouldn't say normal guys because we're all a bit idiotic, but we're three guys. <laughs> We're just friends and we just give our genuine opinions on it. And sometimes we make light of heavy stuff and sometimes that's, that's definitely upset people and offended them. And I'm sorry that they are offended, but we just look at it through the eyes of, I think, you know, sort of a rational, normal person. And some of it's kind of funny when you take a step back, others aren't, you know, so we just, we just say it like we see it, I guess. Love it. I, I was listening to another episode too, where you guys were talking about sharks and some of the crazy um, encounters you've had because like despite like you being on tv and you know like being quite a vibrant personality i don't actually think you over sensationalize sharks they don't even need over sensationalizing but I, f- I found the conversation you were talking about with your mates like really interesting because um like a lot of people like in the spirit world see like shark scientists redirecting sharks and stuff like that and i've seen yeah. you do that but then another thing you started talking to was um, overstimulating the ampulla of Lorenzini. Can you describe mm-hmm. how you learned how to do that and, and, and how you slowly developed the confidence to interact with some of these larger predators? 
Definitely. Um, and, and, you know, especially because this is a podcast for people that love the aquatic world. Mm. Um, this is like, a, you know, full, this is a do as I say, do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. You know, 100%. like what, in other words, in other words, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> love that I'm caveat. You go. And by the way, I've been bitten by sharks twice. Like there's a scar on my arm here. There's another scar on my leg. So I'm not encouraging this behavior, but, um, you know, and times have changed too. You know, things were different 15 years ago, 20 years ago. People were more hands-on with wildlife. Now it's very frowned upon, right? Like Steve Irwin, I don't think Steve Irwin would be popular today. You know, you'd have all the animal people going, how dare he, how he's harassing those beautiful animals, blah, blah, blah. But he's, he's, he's a treasure, you know? So arguably, arguably yeah. I'd say we need more of him. You know, I agree. And oh, uh, I'm on your team, 100. percent Yeah, yeah. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I'm just, I'm just explaining. You know, because what I'm about to tell, say, may be sensitive to some people, especially in today's climate. But truth is, 15 years ago, when I started working hands-on with sharks, things were different. People didn't know sort of that you can do some of these things. And so I'm very lucky because I, so I've always had an immense fascination with sharks. I mean, I grew up in a landlocked country. I wasn't even around the ocean until I was like 14 years old. And then I just became fully addicted. But um, long story short, you know, I go on a lot of dive trips and every time anyone would scramble out of the water because of a shark, whether it's a Mako on a patty here in California or a tiger shark on a reef in the Caribbean, so on and so forth, I would do the opposite. I'd see everybody cruising out to get away from the sharks and I'd hop in and swim at them because I was so fascinated and I didn't really believe I was going to get chowed up. And I was wrong a couple times, like the hammerhead thing I mentioned and the two scars that I have because of it. But, you know, it was sort of this progression where I like anecdotally was studying sharks, like as an, ob as an observer and trying to understand their body language. And I was reading books by the Custos and learning from, uh, you know, really good people like Michael Dornellis, who's passed on now. And, uh, mm, uh, you know, my, yeah, exactly. Good buddy of mine. Uh, Michael Bolton in Panama is a great shark guy, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. And so I was, I was furthering my curiosity and my understanding of sharks and shark behavior. And I think that's why I have so many like awesome shark week shows now is because I, this fascination never ends. But, um, you know, one day I was in the Bahamas. I think I was with Mikey, Mike Dornellis, Reef Hunter. I was. It was the first time I ever interacted with a big tiger shark. I was in the Bahamas. It wasn't at the, the iconic Tiger Beach. It was an entirely different reef with an unknown shark, not like Emma or one of the well-known sharks. Yep. And uh, and this tiger shark rocked up on, on us, and Mike and I were spearfishing, and he, you know, he had really pioneered a lot of the shark handling techniques in the Bahamas, and, and he'd done it off the coast of Florida with bull sharks and all kinds of stuff. And he says to me, he's like, do you, you know, basically he's like, do you want to learn how to work with this animal? And I was like, of course. And so he, he basically told me not to do what he did. And then he dove down and slow, got in front of this tiger shark and slowed her down by rubbing her snout and slowly like half rolled her and then rolled her back as she sort of came in, not for a bite, but to investigate him. Yeah. Right. And I was like, holy shit, that was cool, Mike. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but don't do that. Like, you, you know, you're not ready. Like, you've never done anything like that. I was like, yeah, for sure. I definitely won't do that. And literally took a breath, breathe up, went down and did exactly that right then and there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I'm doing it, she's like, the shark's like sort of chomping her mouth, but in slow motion, not gnarly. And like, I was a little timid and my body language wasn't quite right. So it wasn't like perfect by any means, but I managed to have that first sort of hands-on interaction with a large wild tiger shark. 
And uh, I came up and Mike was like, you're a dumb fuck, but good job. And, uh, and I was like, cool, let's do it again. And so I just sort of, that was my first like really hands-on move with a big tiger shark. And since then I, I've been hands-on with Mako's in New Zealand with guys like Riley Elliott. Uh, I've done tiger sharks all over the world from Puvamula Atoll in the Maldives to, to the iconic tiger beach, to, uh, out to the Cocos Islands, like all these different places. And, um, you know, I don't just, what the reason I gave that intro about how times have changed back then, that was me sort of fucking with a shark to fuck with a shark. And that's, you know, that's what a lot of these sort of animal fiddlers do. Now I do it in the name of science, right? <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. okay, can we get a tag on it? Are we going to take a cloacal sample? Um, you know, do we need to ultrasound this animal, whatever it may be. And so that's just sort of continued and continued to the point that we've done some crazy stuff now, like putting, um, you know, giant Pacific sleeper sharks into tonic immobility and working with salmon sharks to deploy tags and just some really fun stuff with shark species that most people never even get to see in the water. And mm. it's been, um, it's been really cool. That's still poorly understood as far as I'm aware. Like I remember watching some stuff on Shark Weeks of, uh, a while back and they were talking about great whites hunting some of these seal colonies in a pack and like yeah. like really widely spread and maybe like four or five sharks working in cohesion, big great whites, and, and coordinating an attack. And I, I still don't know that – like sometimes I think we think we're a little bit further along sometimes with these animals. Is that kind of your take on it? Do you, are we still discovering a lot about some of this – you know, uh, like sharks in particular? Oh, no doubt. I mean, look, to this day, nobody's ever seen a great white shark mate or give birth, right? And they're probably the most studied shark on the planet. Mm. And so there is a lot le that we have left to learn. And a big part of learning is making assumptions and, and assumptions are sometimes wrong, you know? Mm. And so whoever it was that assumed that these sharks work in packs, it doesn't mean that they're a jackass or they're making it up for TV or, or they're absolutely dead on the money or they're mm. right or they're wrong. It's a theory. That's sort of an, it's a theory. Yeah. It's mm. a hypothesis and I'm sure they're, they're doing everything they can to study it, but you're, it's not like studying, you know, a gorilla in a zoo here. Like you're dealing with a white shark, right. Mm. And it can go anywhere. And most of the time you can't really be in the water with them without a cage. And so it's very, very difficult to get that data and to sort of figure out exactly whether or not those theories are correct. Um, so, I mean, I think it's cool. Do I believe that sharks can communicate and at times work together? Absolutely. I mean, I've been in scenarios where I have been hunted by packs of bull sharks acting independently of each other to behave as a unit. And it's like you see it and you feel it and you observe it but I couldn't explain how they're doing it or why they're doing it, you know, mm. but I've, I've seen it and I know that these things do happen. So I think we have a lot to learn still. Mm -hmm. You're a hex man too from the start and, uh, and you use the underwater hex uh, stuff as well, which was um, sort of ran out of a New Zealand based company that was hex aquatic um, Warren Burt. Uh, I remember hearing you on Joe Rogan talking specifically about the technology and uh, well done on having a very, interesting interview with joe for three hours because he's like he revs at 200 horsepower that guy and like i noticed yeah. like like the the range of conversations and how um curious he is about you know particularly your field of work must have been really enjoyable but um uh, he's a great dude we've hung out a bunch of times i've done his show a couple of times and he's just he's just he's a genuinely interested guy mm. you know and and i think in today's world of sort of uh i don't need to sit here and fluff joe rogan but in today's world of uh you know, everybody's like thinking about themselves and like instant gratification from smartphones and stuff he's the kind of guy that'll take the time like 
block out everything else in his world and truly talk to you and try and learn from you. And that's yeah. fun. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a celebrity like Joe Rogan or Joe Schmo at the grocery store. Mm. When someone is genuinely interested in what you're talking about, it makes having conversations really fun. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, so you guys were talking about Extinct or Alive. You talked about some of the stuff in the TV show that you've created. One of the um, things that intrigued me was the story of this El Demonio Negro, a 50-foot shark yeah. that terrorized yeah. um, tourists. We've already been talking sharks. Let's continue if that's all right. Um, sure. Was making that episode, and have you enjoyed that journey? Is TV fun? TV's great. Um, you know, it's like everything. I think I think when people look at what I do for a living making TV, they're like, oh my God, all that guy does is travel the world and work <laughs> with animals and like, you know, never has any like anything bad or anything go wrong. It's not that at all. You know, like 70% of my time is spent behind a computer creating TV shows and writing pitch decks and talking to executives and justifying why the things I want to do are necessary and so on and so forth. And um but once you get through all of that, the process of making TV is an absolute blast. And I think the reason I enjoy it so much, and, and I'm probably not even the best person to ask because you, you ask someone who's worked with a bunch of people, I get to work with my best friends. Johnny Harrington, my underwater director of photography, he worked for me for a free hex wetsuit for the first time when he was 22 years old. And he, I, we took a 10-day trip to Baja in exchange for a free wetsuit because he was a broke kid. Um, you know, and, and he's been working with me ever since. And Mitch Long, my, my top side director of photography, I met him day one on production and he rocked up in like skinny ripped jeans looking as LA as they come. And I was like, this guy isn't going to last a week. And he's been around for eight years. So, wow. you know, I, I think when you surround yourself with the kind of people that you like that, that are literally like my best friends in the world, like my wife says, we're like a traveling fraternity. You know, we just like rock around the world. Like we're always pranking each other and causing shit and like we work hard, play hard. And so for me, the process of making TV, being surrounded by people that I love and getting to work with wildlife and travel to all these incredible places is, uh, is nothing I'd rather do. Yeah. And uh, you, you want to be surrounded by people like that, particularly when you've got to take a shit in the wild as well. You must have some funny <laughs> poo stories from your adventures. Oh yeah. Oh man. We've had it all from dysentery in Madagascar. I mean, I, I was telling a story to some friends just two nights ago about when I went on this hike in Madagascar and this, this tummy bug ran through the crew and I was the last <laughs> one to get hit and it kicked in on the hike and I made it like six miles into like the 18 mile hike and I just lay down on the trail, pants around my ankle in the fetal position <laughs> and just had it coming out both ends for like four hours in the hot sun in Madagascar and the crew just left me. They're like, we can't do anything with him. And so they came back like three hours later and I was still in the fetal position on the trail. Far out. <laughs> Hydration becomes a massive issue, eh, doesn't it, when you got dysentery? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we uh, everything, man. I mean, we've been to some interesting places and eaten some weird stuff and like dehydration, heat stroke, fatigue of all kinds, tummy bugs. I mean, you name it, we've had it. And I don't mind it. It's part of the process. So what do you take with you? Like what's in your, like your, your medical care bag when you're doing some of these remote um, type trips, like you're headed out for four or five days unsupported or, or, or maybe you've got like a local guide or something. I mean, how, how much planning goes into your first aid kit and being prepared? Uh, months of planning for everything, um, everything you can think of. So we, 
if it's something sort of close to home, we don't bring a medic, meaning like, okay, we can hike out in two hours or something, which is not typically the kind of work we do, but every now and then that is the case. But for the last like four years, we've had a medic with us because something's always going on. I mean, I got the shark bite, the one I pointed to on my arm on a shoot. You know, I was working with lemon sharks and got nailed. And so having a medic on site uh, as part of the team is, is pretty critical. Um, and, you know, honestly, his name's Josh, our, our, our company medic. And I don't really know what preparation Josh does anymore because I trust him so much. I send him like, here's what we're, where we're going. Here's what we're doing. You know, aside from your camping gear, make sure you have enough stuff for everybody. And he's, he's hit, he's hit Mitch with EpiPens and he's sewn me together about three times. And we carried a guy out on a stretcher and we had a guy go down from heat stroke and crack his head on a lava rock. I mean, and he's, he's buttoned everybody up. So he's, Josh is really solid. So Josh does a lot of the planning with regards to what medical equipment you're taking in. Yeah. So we each have our own role, our own role within the team. And we're not a big team. We're like six to six to nine people, depending on the project. And like, my thing is the wildlife work, right? What tranquilizers do I need? Do we need helicopters? Where are we finding the animal? How are we tracking it? What kind of trail cameras, blah, blah, blah. Then there's my camera guys, right? And their job is, okay, Forrest is planning on doing X, Y, and Z. We need this equipment, like these cameras, these GoPros, these drones. And then there's the sound guy. And he's like, okay, Forrest is going to be jumping off a boat, trying to tackle a shark. We need waterproof mics and so on and so forth. And Josh is the same thing. Like he reads through the creatives and the plans and where we're going and what we're attempting to do and goes, okay, what's the worst case scenario? All right, Forrest gets trampled by an elephant. We need a stretcher, right? Forrest does this stupid thing. We need this. We need anti-venom, you know, so on and so forth. And so I don't question what those guys do. They don't question what I do. And we just all, you know, we, we just, well, they question what I do plenty, but they don't question. <laughs> they don't That's question, part of it, like, Yeah, no, totally. But uh, yeah, everybody just has their role and, and sees to it. And we just all rely on each other and make sure that everybody's going to, going to do the right thing. And so far they have. For guys working like, you know, eight hours a day, they work their 40 hour a week job and they hate it. And they just sort of, you know, that's what they have to do to meet their obligations and stuff. And they look on in your lifestyle with with a lot of envy. Um, what do you have to say to them about how many hours you put into a day to do what it is that you do? Like, cause I'm, I'm, I'm listening in and I'm thinking this guy's doing 14, 16 hour days. Like when you, especially like if you're on the middle of a project, like you just, it's, yeah. Um, look, I, the grass is always greener. I look at my friends who are lawyers and work in investment and, and one of them's a doctor, one of them's a pilot. They know where their next paycheck is coming from every single month, right? They can go home at 5 PM and play with their kid and not have to work until one in the morning. They don't have calls to Indonesia at, at, you know, 3:45 AM, which is 9 AM Indonesia time or whatever. And so the grass is always greener, right? I think People that work the nine to five, they might look at me and go, man, I really want to do that. Well, sometimes I look at them and go, man, I really wish I could do that. But, you know, I'm not really cut out for the office job style. But I, when we're on a project, when we're on a shoot, we will go oftentimes eight, nine days straight of working 20 hours a day. Like you sleep for three to four hours and you're up again because it's a nocturnal thing. You're pre-dawn and your safety meetings. And, um, you know, and when I'm at home, it doesn't really slow down. I'm working like 14 to 16 hours a day, every single day, just putting these projects together and talking to all the right people and pulling all the right strings. And so 
you know, I, my, my wife always jokes that I haven't taken a day off in 10 years because it doesn't matter if it's Christmas, I'm trying to write stuff or, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but I like to work. And so I know by working hard like that, it, it allows me the opportunity to go on these projects and go to these cool places. And so it, you know, the, it sounds great, but the amount of sickness, the amount of energy put in, the amount of time working is a lot compared to your average job. Mm-hmm, 100%. Yeah. Do you look back, though, at the at the body of work that you've created in 10 years with, with a lot of pride? Does it? Do you ever have a chance to sort of reflect on it and just go, you know, like, I've, I've worked my ass off, but like I'm super proud of the impact I've had and the and the content I've made and the you know all of the things that I've been able to do. I you know how when you look at like I, I don't know Isaac, have you ever made a song or made a YouTube video or something and then you watch it ten years later and you're like, oh god, what yeah. was I thinking? Like, <laughs> yeah, look, at look at that music choice. So that in the media space, I often feel like that where I look back at something that I made like six years ago and I'm like, ugh, like. Why did I think techno music was the right choice? For this? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but as far as the impact goes, like looking back and being like, wow, you know, we found a tortoise that hadn't been seen in 110 years and released hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding for that. And, you know, we extended a national park in Sri Lanka because of one of our discoveries, like the body of work I'm very proud of. But yeah. like the media, the haircuts, the style, the fashion choices, the, the music, yeah. I'm like, I look back and cringe a lot. <laughs> yeah. You've got to listen to your mates along the way because they provide you that abrupt feedback. Whereas uh, oh, straight up. hindsight's terrible too. But we're our own worst critics too. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, overall, I'm very proud of what we've done, like sort of nose to tail of it but uh i've definitely made some interesting choices in my life but we learn from those mistakes right i mean that's that's how we grow and how we learn is by doing something and realizing what we've done right and what we've done wrong got a sweet deal for you today guys go to freedivingfamily.com and learn from adam stern and a select team of experts on different disciplines there's Frenzel, Advanced Frenzel, Hands-Free Equalization, Mouthful, Deep Frenzel Equalization, Bifitting Essentials. These are courses that will give you the 1% that will allow you to improve. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. Again, that's the code SPIRO to get 20% off at freedivingfamily.com. Thanks, Adam and team. Love it. Try out Audible service. Listen to more than 180,000 different books. Books like 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. Ooh, can't wait till you read my mum's review. She loved it, and I hope you do too. Go to noobspiro.com forward slash audible to download it. Trek dude, you're killing it on the Noob Spiro podcast. Every guest you get on froths on the spearing lifestyle, and the actionable info is off the chain. Over here at uh, Spearing Magazine HQ, it's the same, buddy. So many noobers are submitting their adventures, lessons learned, and pictures here at SpearingMagazine.com. I just wanted to say that noobers can get an international subscription at SpearingMagazine.com. Also, they can uh, check out our In the Face Apparel or get a subscription to the greatest Spearing Magazine on the planet. That's all right here at SpearingMagazine.com. I am Jeremy Gamble, and uh, man, I love the Noob Spiro podcast. This is Jeremy out. How do you think about opportunity cost? Because you're a man with a lot of opportunities. You made time for me today to jump on a little spearfishing podcast and chat 
Um, but I'd imagine like a guy like yourself, there's opportunities every day, like to do all sorts of things. You've got a book, you've got TV shows, you've got a podcast, you've got a wife and family. And there's, a, there's so many opportunities available for a guy like you. How do you weigh up, determine what it is that you're going to do from day to day, from month to month, from year to year? It's a good question. Um, you know, I sort of just follow my nose. Um, if it's something I want to do, whether it's going to finance my whole year or whether it's not going to pay a dime, I usually do it. You know, I'm very, if it's something I'm passionate about, I know I'll do a good job. You know, for example, doing your podcast, Isaac, like I know it's a small spearfishing podcast. I fucking love spearfishing and I have for years. So when I had the opportunity to chat with you about spearfishing, I would much rather do that than sit here and do a CNN story, which is the thing I'm doing next in, in 45 minutes, oh, um, you know, on, on a bear attack, which is what I have to do next is do a CNN interview. But I'd much rather make the time to do a spearfishing podcast and talk about diving and fishing and adventure than I would do an, another dull CNN news interview. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I managed to fit them both in today. But if they said to me, do one or the other, I would have done this one, you know, yes, because, sir. yeah, it's just it's something I enjoy more. And I. I've always, Alan Watts has a great quote, right? And I'm going to butcher it. But basically, he says, it doesn't matter what you want to do. Just do that and become a master of it. And once you become a master of it, you'll have value. And that's a big butchering of the Alan Watts quote that I absolutely love. But that's how I've always felt, which is like, whether it's spearfishing, and I used to spearfish competitively, by the way, mm. but whether it's spearfishing, whether it's wildlife work, just give it everything, like give it your all, give it a hundred percent. And then eventually you become a master of that thing. And there's value in that. Mm. Let's talk about spearfishing. So you got six world records. Was any one of them like stand out for you? Like where you were just like super pumped. Cause I, I re read the story about the, the speckled flounder one, which was kind of like an accidental world record that you and your mates totally. kind of stumbled on. But totally. um, I'd love to hear <laughs> like one, tell me about one of them that was your favorites, like stories to recount. Absolutely. And I can't wait to send Kevin Glenn this podcast. So Kevin Glenn is, is one of my closest buddies. He's the owner of Mantis Spearfishing based out of Ventura. They're just sort of a small niche spearfishing company. They make badass spear guns and a few other things. And he's one of my best friends. And Kevin, right when the IUSA opened up the pole spear world record categories and separated it from the spear gun world records, Kevin, you know, Kevin knew I was a big pole spear guy. And I have been for a long time, like long before the IUSA opened up the different categories. And uh, Kevin's like, we're going to go get the white sea bass spearfishing world record, right? Which is sitting up there on my, on my wall, by the way. Yeah, cool. And, uh, and I was like, oh, Kevin, like white sea bass. So I'm sure you know, Isaac, like the connotation, of, you know, the silver ghost. Silver like you ghost. barely see them. Like they're super hard to get close to, blah, blah, blah. And this is like, man, this is like six years ago now. And, uh, and Kevin's like, let's go get the, like, let's put down the spear guns. Let's go and get the white sea bass spearfishing world record on pole spear. And I'm like, let's do it, man. Like, what a challenge. And so we're, we're like, man, I don't know. We're like nine, ten months into this thing. And neither of us, I think Kevin, Kevin, I think had torn off one in nine or ten months. Oh, and wow. I, hadn't even, I hadn't even taken a strike at one yet. Right. And so he calls me up one day. Again, we're nine or ten months into this. I'm burnt out on chasing this stupid record and these stupid ass fish with a pole spear because I could have shot like ten with a spear gun by now. And, uh, I'm totally burnt out on it. And Kevin calls me up and it's like five o'clock in the middle of summer. And he's like, let's run out to our spot and check for sea bass. And I'm like, Ugh, fine. Meet me at the boat. We go down to my boat, load up, bust ass over there. It's like a 40 minute run. And we get there. 
And I look over the side and it's soup. I mean, it is pea soup, like five foot of visibility in one of the sharkiest spots in California that I hate and Kevin loves. And he's like, <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing it. And I'm like, all right, we're doing it. And so I'm like intentionally putting on my wetsuit as slow as possible and like really like not into it at all. It's cold. It's murky. It's like sunset. And Kevin slips into the water before me. And I'm like, great. Like now he's not going to pressure me to go. And uh, <laughs> he spends like, like 30 minutes diving around and I'm still like buffing with my weight belt and like, like doing everything I can to not get in the water. And finally I hear Kevin break the surface and he's like, <laughs> and I'm like, no way. He's like, dude, I got one. I got one. And I'm like, no way, Kevin. That's amazing. And I like see him going down. He's fighting and the surface is breaking and he's thrashing and all of that. And like five, 10 minutes goes by. It wasn't a super long fight. And he brings in this like 36 pound white sea bass. Right. Man. And I'm like, no way, dude. Like you've done it. You've broken the record. This is so sick. Like nobody shot a white sea bass like that on pole spear yet. Like this is freaking awesome, man. Congrats. And he's like, thanks, dude. I'm so pumped. I'm like, you should be. We're high-fiving. I'm like, all right, I'm slipping in the water. And, and, and I haven't been in the water yet at all. And he's been out there. He's been working his ass off. I slip in the water. I grab my pole spear and I do one drop to get the bubbles out of my wetsuit mm. underneath the boat. And as I get to the bottom of the reef and I'm like kind of itching around, getting the bubbles out of my wetsuit, the white sea bass, you've got to make sure nothing burps, nothing, or you spook them. Mm. And I'm doing this on the bottom of the reef in this pea soup visibility on my very first breath hold, just literally to clear my suit. And three sea bass come swimming in as I'm <laughs> sitting on the bottom of the reef. And I look at these sea bass. And again, it's like five foot biz. I load the pole spear, I swing around and I let it fly and stone, I think it was 46 pound white sea bass <laughs> on my first dive while Kevin is still like getting the tip out of his fish, pop oh. up, pop up with the stoned white sea bass in my hand and flop it on the deck next to his. <laughs> and it's like 15, 20 pounds bigger than his. And he's like, dude, fuck you. And I'm like, I broke the record. I broke like you had the record for like eight minutes, dude. Congrats. Ha, ha, ha. And, uh, and Kevin is just like, he's gutted, like just absolutely heartbroken, devastated that on one dive, I dropped down and plugged the sea bass and brought it back to the boat. And it was one of the, it was back in the, so white sea bass, sometimes there's a one fish limit. Sometimes there's a three and it was one fish limit. So there was no going back in the water. And uh, sure enough, we got in, we weighed him. Mine was like, whatever, 15-ish pounds heavier than Kevin's. I submitted it. I got the record. And Kevin was just livid that I had done that when he had put in so much more effort than me. Wow. What <laughs> so a that's my favorite one. <laughs> what a special fish to shoot. Like, isn't spearfishing a funny thing, though, sometimes? Like, you can work your ass off. And then a lot of it just comes down to opportunity, eh? being in the right place at the right time. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's opportunity meeting preparedness, right? That is spearfishing in a nutshell. If you put in the time, it will happen always. I, and that's, I, I strongly feel that with spearfishing, whether it's sea bass or yellowtail or grouper or anything, if you put in the time, you will get presented with the opportunity. And then it's like, how well can you close on that opportunity? And, you know, I've done like bluefin trips and stuff where I just I just like couldn't seal the deal. Like I was in the wrong spot. My gun was pointed the wrong way, whatever it is. And I just couldn't seal the deal. And then other times I've had one shot like that sea bass story and made it count perfectly. Yeah. And so you just, 
you just never know. Wahoo is another species you seem to love to hunt. I uh, I read through some of your socials and I, I followed up with some of your wahoo. You you have a particular love for hunting them, I believe. Is that right? I love shooting wahoo. Yeah, they're so much fun. I mean, they're just these big, fast mackerel. You know, they play such a game of cat and mouse with you in the blue water, which in my opinion, a lot of blue water fish don't do. They just sort of swim up to you or swim up to your flashers or whatever. But wahoo, it's so much body language. It's so much cat and mouse. I, I mean, I've shot a fraction of what a lot of guys have shot. I mean, I probably, I could probably count on two hands the number of wahoo I've ever shot. But I, I still haven't I, shot one. I've been doing yeah. it longer than ten years, and it's just been a boogie fish for me. I've, I've started seeing them recently, which you know, in spearfishing, as you know, like first you've got to start seeing them and before you work out how to approach them and stuff like that. Totally. So totally. with with your wahoo there, and I've, I've heard they're different to hunt in different parts of the world. Like with you, what's your sort of go to when you see them, and and how do you often see them? Yeah, so I've I've mostly shot them in Baja, um, you know, in Mexico. And uh, for me, it's just, and I've watched guys make this mistake time and time again where they dive bomb these wahoo. And the wahoo just, they're just too fickle to allow you to dive bomb them like other fish. Like a yellowtail, like one of the fish we hunt here, you dive bomb them all day long. They're like, oh, what you doing? And then you shoot them in the head, right? But wahoo, if I see them, I make sure the first thing is that my body language is completely relaxed. If I get into that like hunting mode where my back's arched and my gun's sticking out, I feel like I'm always messing it up. And again, I'm not the world leading expert on this. This is just what I've figured out. But I go straight into being as relaxed as I can and I dive down away from them. So if they're coming in left to right, I'll dive down like going the opposite direction of them. So it doesn't look like I'm approaching them at all. And then I'll sort of turn back to the flasher or the bait or even just sort of kitty corner to the direction that they're coming from and let them move into me. I've found every single time I've attempted to sort of chase a wahoo or go towards a wahoo, it just stays that perfect distance out of range. Now, I've seen people from like uh, from like Fiji and stuff that like dive bomb them with like single band 110 rail guns and just stick them no problem. So I don't know if it's just our fish behave differently or what it is, but the fish that I've been around, it's like, it's always this game of like, I'm not a threat. I'm not a predator. I'm just in the same space as you. And then they go, okay, cool. Let's see what, what this thing's eating or what this thing's doing. And then I'm like, bam, gotcha. Um, and I like playing that game a lot. What's been your, I mean, shot placement seems to be a bit of an issue too. Cause these things are like, you know, exocert missiles, like their body shape is just built for pure speed. So, and, and, and that, that first blistering run, once you put a shot on them seems to be just hectic at times. Where, where, where do you try to put your shot? Do you angle it away? Uh, what's your go-to? Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm just lucky if I get a shot on a Wahoo, <laughs> you know, I don't, I won't typically just take a terrible shot, but if I even get one, I'm usually pretty happy. And uh, the shot that I try and go for is the back third of the fish in the tail. Their gut cavity is so soft. I mean, you can literally put your finger in it and like rip through it with your finger. And so, and with that burst of speed that they have, like it just, I'm, I'm nervous to take the like head shot or the high shoulder shot because there's so much stomach there. So mm. I like to shoot sort of behind the cloaca, behind the stomach, anywhere in that tail section. And then even when they run, if it rips, it rips like straight backwards towards the even more sinewy part of the tail. It's also the worst meat is by the tail. It's where all that sinew comes together, mm. you know, to the muscle of the tail. So I'm taking basically a tail shot, you know, in the last third of the body if I have my choice. What's your PB? Uh, 
68 pounds or something like that. That's a good fish. Like that's a yeah. That's a lot of power in that fish. Like um, that thing dra- that, that'll drag you for a kilometer or more. Oh yeah, I mean I, I've shot you know much larger tuna that have had less horizontal pull than a big wahoo, which you grab onto and you're you know you're practically water skiing behind them, and it's it's so much fun. I mean they're just such a cool fish. And they're very sustainable too. You know they grow quickly and there's a lot of them. I don't know. I just what. Well, I got, I got a thing for Wahoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that uh, sensation of being tucked along the surface of the ocean, holding onto a spear gun is, it's pretty unique, isn't it? Oh, it's great, man. I, I got a pretty funny story. I'm going to tell it at my friend Max's expense and I won't say his last name because I, it's going to get booed out of the spearfishing world if I do. But, uh, so last summer, no, yeah, last summer we're out. So, you know, we've been getting these bluefin tuna runs in Southern California that have mm. been wild and I've had, the joy of capitalizing on that quite a lot. And, um, last summer I'm out diving with my buddy Max and, uh, we get in on this foamer and they're just monsters. They're all cows. Like the smallest fish is like 150 pounds. Oh yeah. And, uh, and I, I take, you know, Max actually dives first, but he wasn't quite in the right position. And then I dive and I shoot and I nail this, this cow, just this monster tuna and tuna takes off. And, uh, and I come up and I'm like, woohoo, got him, you know? And uh, I start fighting this fish. Mm. And right then, you know, Max is like, he's not sour that he didn't get a fish, but he's like, ah, oh, you know, good job. You know, I like, now I don't get to chew one. And a foamer breaks out and the guy driving the boat is like, another foamer, another foamer. And Max loads into the boat. I'm 90 miles offshore in the middle of nowhere, no boats around, nothing. And Max loads into the boat and the boat just fucking bails. So they just <laughs> take off. I'm getting towed by this tuna, like riding this float. And I just see the boat going the opposite direction and over the horizon and out of sight. And I'm like, fuck you guys. Yeah. And uh, so they, they bail on me and I, I don't, they didn't even throw me a second gun, which, you know, you have to put two shots in to land those big fish. And so I'm just slowly working this fish up. And I look up every few minutes for the boat and I'm not seeing it. And one of the times I look up, I see what looks like a tiny foamer, like maybe like, you know, a quarter mile away, like pretty close to me. And it looks like this tiny little foamer splashing. And I'm like, whoa, shit, there's tuna all over. And I still haven't even seen my fish because, you know, it's, it's just submarine and I'm fighting it, whatever. Mm. Anyway, like 20 minutes go by and I see the boat start coming back and I'm like, oh, thank God. Like I can breathe now. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, like I'm not so terrified that I'm out in the middle of the ocean going to get lost being towed around by a tuna. Yeah. And, uh, and I see them pull up to that tiny foamer that I saw and I'm like, Oh sick. They're going to get, they're going to get a fish. Like there's definitely one puddling over there or something. And, uh, they pull up to that fish and nobody jumps in the water. And it's close to me at this point. It's like 300 yards away. And I'm like, weird. I wonder why they didn't jump in the water. And then all of a sudden the boat comes speeding over to me at full speed and Max throws me a second loaded gun and, and he's like, I need to get in the water. I'm like, what happened with that foamer? And they're like, oh, that's not a foamer. That's a giant Mako ripping a sea lion to shreds. And it's like <laughs> 300 feet away from you. And I'm like, oh my fuck you guys. Like, I can't believe you just bitched me out here with this giant Mako eating the sea lion. And uh, like five minutes later, I get the tuna up. I put the second shot in it. And right as we're loading in the boat this Mako swims over to us. And like I said, it's this monster Mako and he is all fired up, like pectorals locked, back arched. Like the sea lion is still dying. It's not even dead yet. And, uh, and, and these guys had just abandoned me in the middle of the ocean with this Mako, like a quarter mile away, chewing on this sea lion. 
And I was just like, okay, well, we're going to have to have a talk about how that happened <laughs> in the future. <laughs> Man, they, like I heard you talking on Wild Spot, and you are talking about how like bull sharks and dirty water I think are probably the most, um, you know, risky shark in your opinion. Yeah. But Mako's like postured up Mako sharks are friggin' scary too. A, because they're just very. so fast. Very. And they're very erratic, you know, with, with bull sharks, especially with tiger sharks, even white sharks, you can sort of just gauge what they're doing. You're like, Oh, they're not that fired up or, Oh, they're coming in slowly. Like, Oh yeah, he's coming in a little fast. Give him a poke or whatever. <laughs> but with Mako's, it's like this, this like, mental light switch that that flicks in their head and i've seen it a couple times riley elliott's really he knows way more about makos than i do but i've dove with him in new zealand where even like a five foot long mako is like super chill mellow like even chewing on the bait whatever and then all of a sudden like that light switch flips and it just becomes this like this like methed out like psycho shark and it's like like all super erratic and crazy and then goes back to being mellow and you're like if it decided to be all messed out like that when I was in the way of the bait, that would have been my leg. And they're just, they're so, like, to me, weirdly unpredictable. Mm, mm. I've seen them going ballistic just when I was line fishing in New Zealand, but um, where I am sort of in Queensland, we don't, we don't really get them out here that I've heard of. So yeah. they seem to be more of a temperate water type um, shark as well. I don't know how big their range is, actually. They, 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 are they quite sensitive to pressure, from your understanding? Uh, sorry, temperature? Uh... I mean, they're a very global shark. They're in basically all the world's major oceans. Um, as far as their temperature sensitivity, I mean, I know that they range all the way up on the East Coast, like far into Nova Scotia, and go all the way down, you know, into super tropical waters. So I do think they're they're they're, they're all sharks are temperature sensitive, but they seem to have a pretty dynamic range. And like I said, I mean, they're a very global animal. There are a few subspecies, but regardless, they're they're all over the world. So, you know, I, I don't know why. Where in Queensland are you? Brisbane. Okay. Southeast yeah, corner. Mean, there's definitely, there's definitely Makos down near Sydney and quite mm. a lot of them. Mm, so mm, I, mm. I don't know why there aren't many up by Brisbane. I, I, maybe just the prey sources aren't right. Maybe it is too warm, like too bordering on subtropical. We, Hard we, to say. We kind of get that. We're in that nice sweet spot where we do get that nice mix of the tropical stuff and then we, we get the temperate water stuff and we're kind of in that sweet spot where there's just a lot of species here. In the world of freedive spearfishing, there's no magic breathing technique that's all of a sudden going to get you down and shoot massive fish at depth and holding big bottom times, but there is a way to do it safer and smarter, take down more fuel to maximise the time that you have there. Learn at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted with Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. If you take down more fuel, you can stay for longer. Learning to take a bigger breath is not such a big deal. Ted breaks it down for you with a free online course at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. Take down 20 to 30% more air just by learning how to take a full breath. Again, learn how to do it free at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. Today's Noob Sparrow podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at noobsparrow.com forward slash audible. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone or Android phone. Get amongst it, noobsparrow.com forward slash audible. Free trial, free book, no brainer. That's noobsparrow.com forward slash audible. 
Carterfreedive.com have got a sick offer for noobs today. If you've already gone and done the freedivingsafety.com course, which is a free safety course for Spiros, I think this course is probably the next thing on your radar. It's called Break the 10 Meter Barrier. It's designed to get you down the bottom, laying on the bottom in that 10 meter, 30 foot mark and enjoying yourself, not suffering, not overwhelmed with the difficulty of it and just breaking down all the simple techniques that will get you there. They'll get you laying on the bottom, relaxed and ready to shoot fish. It's, um, it's a great way to just give you the simple and basic techniques to get you there. Check it out at howtofreedive.com and you can start this course for free. If you like what you see, then by all means purchase and use the code NoobSpiro to save some money. Some dosh, some cheddar, some moolah. Boom. Howtofreedive.com. Use the code NoobSpiro to save. Where you are in California, though, could be quite interesting too. Like you've got quite often warm land temperatures and then the ocean temps are not necessarily reflective of that. They can be quite cool. And... Um, you got a unique fishery around there. When you head out day to day, do you go shore diving, boat diving? Who are you go to dive buddies just on a on a regular day diving? Well, I live in Santa Barbara, California, which is right in the central part of the state, and so we get a nice mix of like Southern California stuff. Like the tuna don't quite get to us, but they get pretty close. But we get all the yellowtail, all the white sea bass. You know, I would argue more white sea bass than most other places in the state. And then, you know, we also get a nice mix of like the rock fish and the things that they get up north where they don't get as many game fish. So it's a very transitional zone that I live in. But one of the reasons it's such a transitional zone is it's very nutrient dense with upwellings. Mm. And so the coastal diving here and any Santa Barbara diver that hears this is going to hate me, but I'm okay with it. The coastal diving sucks. Mm. Um, It's just like it's always murky. It's, uh, you know, we do get game fish, but they're very spread out. And it's just, it's, I just don't enjoy coastal diving in Santa Barbara, but we have the Channel Islands National Park 20 miles off our doorstep. I can literally see it out my window here. And, uh, and the Channel Islands National Park is fantastic because there the water is typically quite clear. Uh, it'll hold sea bass for long chunks of time. It'll hold yellowtail for long chunks of time. Uh, I'm one of the few people that has seen Dorado at those islands. You know, it's rare and only during an El Nino year. So, um, you know, this is a very long way of saying that typically if I'm going to dive, I'm taking the boat and going out to the Channel Islands because it's, it's a 40, 45 minute run. You're at the islands. The diving's incredible. What's interesting is our islands go from the northernmost island all the way to Anacapa Island before you start getting into the further southern islands. And there's a huge transition. Our northernmost island, San Miguel, has huge lingcod and vermilion rockfish nice. and no lobster because it's too cold and, and big elephant seals and all this, this one type of biome. And as you come further and further south, like to Anacapa Island, there's no elephant seals. There's, very, there's practically no rockfish at all, aside from a few of the kelp species. Um, and we have white, white sea bass and yellowtail and more of the, more of the tropical species down there. Some people have even seen broomtail grouper there. Mm. And so it, it just changes very much. And, and what's cool about where I live is you can head out and head in one direction and get to that northern habitat, or you can head out and head in another direction and get to that more southern Baja-style habitat. And on any given flat day, you have your choice of the range of different habitats that you can dive. Yeah. Yeah, nice. So do you go out hunting fish like planning to entertain sometimes like like targeting specific fish for specific meals um 
I do that with lobster a lot more than I do fish because people are obsessed with lobster and I don't really get it. Like I like lobster, but I'm not, I'm not into the like fanatical, Oh my God, got to have a lobster thing. Mm. So if I'm hosting like a dinner party or a Christmas thing or something, I'll go out and get seven lobster, which is our California limit. And you know, if you have seven people over and you're feeding each one of them a lobster, they're like, Oh my God, this is like (laughs) the fanciest house guest dinner I've ever been to. Um, But otherwise, I really only target halibut, white sea bass, and yellowtail. It's been, I was just having this conversation with Kevin Glenn, who I mentioned uh, just just yesterday. I don't think I've shot a calico bass or a rockfish in in probably close to 10 years. And I certainly haven't shot any sheep's head or any of our reef species. I just don't target them anymore. Um, So the the demersal species, you... You, do you, is it a taste thing or is it more of a sustainability thing or is it just like you feel like you've just grown out of that as a Spiro? Um, I think it's all three, uh, you know, and, and people will argue and be like, oh, calico bass, like a big calico is one of the hardest things to hunt. And it, it can be. I don't argue that for a second. But, you know, I've seen some of these reefs that I've been visiting for 15 years at the islands go from having these reef master 35. 30 plus pound giant sheep's head to the males on the reef being like two pounds because Spiros, not fishermen, have shot out the big males. And so, you know, when I see that, I don't want that. I want my kid to be able to dive those reefs when he's 13 years old and see the 30 pound sheep's head. And so I just don't add that. And I don't think they're very good eating. Like Calico's okay eating, but not, you know, not, not what people like tend to rave about it. I just don't want to shoot those reef species. The pelagic species that are coming through white sea bass numbers are up year after year, according to the NOAA surveys. Yellowtail are incredibly sustainable. Um, they taste better. There's more meat. There's more challenge to hunt them. I mean, that's just that's just what I like and what I want to do. And, and I'm only bringing home a fish because I'm only targeting game fish. I would say one out of three dive trips. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting a fish every dive trip. No way. We, we, sometimes with spearfishing, we 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 love to say, you know, we're most the most selective and the most sustainable fishery, and and I I agree with that a hundred percent. It's it's true. However, there are certain species, and perhaps sheep's head are one of them, that are vulnerable to the unique pressure of spearfishing. I think that's where we need to be mature and to hand that information on to the younger ones. Like shifting baseline phenomena, like is 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 a bit of a big deal when we're taking out the biggest of certain species that are vulnerable to spearfishing. It's something we need to all just sort of. I don't know, just take a step back and just have a bit of a chat with it. I think maybe like that species is part of a diver's maturity curve and then they sort of, they grow out of it as they, they grow in knowledge and awareness of, of how they're affecting and impacting their environment. I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, some people argue differently and be like, oh, a fish is a fish or whatever, but I don't feel that way. I, sheep's head are undeniably vulnerable to spear fishermen. I mean, fishermen catch them and I'm sure fishermen catch way more than spear fishermen do, Mm. but it doesn't mean that as a responsible docent of the ocean, you should lean on that as a crutch, as an excuse for which to take a big sheep's head. If you know where one lives, I mean, I could literally like, Isaac, you could come to my house and say, I want to shoot a 30 pound sheep's head. And I could drive you directly to a rock pile and say, look in that crack right there. And you don't even need to open your eyes, just point and pull the trigger. And I know you'll pull a 30 pound sheep's head out of that reef. That's fine. It's not the end of the world to do that. But then the next one that takes its place is 22 pounds. And the one that takes its place is 16 pounds. And before you know it, you're down to males that are two pounds. And fishermen aren't going to do that, right? Mm. They might fish that rock pile every day, 
Maybe they'll catch that big one. Maybe they won't, but they're not because we're so sustainable and so selective. They're not selecting for that giant one. Like we are as fishermen. And so being responsible to me means making those choices. And those choices are different for everybody. You know, some people like, yeah. And and I don't, I don't hate people that feel that way. What I do hate is somebody who's like, I'm killing every fish. I don't care. Big, small, doesn't matter what the damage is. Yeah. If you're someone who's like, I love eating sheep's head ceviche. I'll take three a year and they're big (laughs) I know where to take them. I'm not going to be like, you're an asshole. I don't think you are an asshole. Like good. That's fine. It's not my choice. Um, You know, I'd rather make ceviche out of something else, but everybody's just sort of got to make their own decision on that. And, and I think the collective decision should be one that's sustainable. That, that This is part of the reason why I love having the, the podcast. So like, you know, like you, your, your conscience and your expertise is informed by years in the water and you, Aaron, our ideas change. Forrest, I know you haven't got too much time left. If we have got time, I'd love to discuss your gear, like your gear preferences. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Man. I, I'm good. Isaac for a, about, uh, Let's call it 12 more minutes because at 5.15 my time, I have to hop onto the CNN thing, but I'm good for, let's say, 12 more minutes. Perfect. I'll take every minute I can get. So what's in your your gear bag for this uh, this Channel Island spearfishing that you love? Uh, So I shoot a Diablo spear gun, which if you guys haven't heard of him, this guy named Gene, he's based out of Guatemala, makes the most fantastic, beautiful spear guns called Diablo spear guns. They're, I don't know my woods, but I think they're a teak or some kind of hardwood. They're beautiful. I like to shoot a 62 inch gun, which for me is an all around size. It's a mid handle. I can do white sea bass with it in the kelp beds. I've shot halibut with it out of the sand without it being a big problem. And I, it has the reach to reach out there and punch through those yellowtail that stay 20 feet away. Um, I, I, as you pointed out, I'm a big hex guy. And even though the hex wetsuits are discontinued, I think I still have three new ones sitting because uh, I stockpiled them when I heard they were going out. And so I still have three new ones sitting in my storage unit. So until those are totally toast, I'll probably keep using those. Um, and then the other wetsuits that I love are Waihana wetsuits. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but super, super comfy. I'll be honest, much more comfortable than my Hex wetsuit. Very warm. Obviously, they don't have that fancy technology that the Hex has in it, but fantastic wetsuits. And I'm a big fan of theirs. Um, I've seen them. You know, they're, they're a Hawaiian-based company in my understanding. Correct. So- Sometimes I the the problem I had, and I'm not saying this is true of Waihana, but sometimes with wetsuits that are super soft and they feel real good and flexible, though they don't necessarily have that that durability or that longevity you get out of them. Um, what's been your take on the suits that you've had so far? How much life are you getting out of them, and are, do they feel like they're going to last? Uh, the Waihana is definitely so. My hex suits have held up well, and I think they held up better than most other wetsuits because they had that conductive carbon yarn in them, mm. um, which I think made them stronger. Uh, I have three Waihana suits now: one that was made for an Arctic diving thing that I did, and two more tropical ones. And I've beat the crap out of that Arctic one. I could tell you that, and it does not feel compressed. I don't have any tears in it. I'm really a big, big fan of that. And by the way, I don't have any. I've had every spearfishing company under the sun reach out to me and yeah. I don't have a single like endorsement-y thing. So I'm just giving people my honest opinion. What about the Noob, I, the Noob Spiro t-shirt that I'm going to send you? You have to wear that everywhere. I thought we already right, 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 right. And it's funny because <laughs> I noticed I was wearing my Blue Water Hunter spearfishing shirt yeah. today just by coincidence and I'm now going to wear it for my CNN interview. But um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's funny, but yeah, I'm just saying like don't I, I don't want anybody to take this as me trying to sell a product because I don't get anything out of it. Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan. Yeah, you know, like I said, I love the hex suits. 
I love my Waihana suits. I typically use Omer fins, the Stingray Carbon 25s. They're oh, a medium yeah. stiffness. Yeah. Um, you know, those things I can beat to shit. I've taken them to Baja, thrown them around in Pongas, thrown them in the back of the truck, the back of the plane, whatever it is. And I never worry about them, even though they're carbon fins, whereas other carbon fins, I've seen guys are so nervous about them getting cracked or stepped on or broken. Mm. I've never worried about my, my Omer fins. Um, and then, yeah, I don't, I, I hate float lines and floats. And that's like a huge, like, oh my God, how can you say that over here in California? But I'm a real guy through and through, unless I'm doing true blue water, I'm always shooting with a reel on my guns. I just way prefer it. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think I have right. I definitely have the Rife stable snorkel. For those that don't know, that thing is the Ferrari of snorkels. I mean, <laughs> that thing is, oh, it's the best snorkel I've ever used. I can't imagine ever using a different snorkel. And I think I have one of the Rife masks. I love Rife products too, by the way. I've, I've had nothing. My very first spear gun was a Rife 100 centimeter Euro. And I still have that gun to this day. Mm. And boy, that thing, uh, that thing has been through it. I've never oiled it. It's, it's literally been buried in the sand in Baja. I think I ran over it in my pickup truck once. I mean, those things are bullet. Rife stuff's awesome, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, yeah. we're kind of spoiled and Like, There's so many awesome, like, niche innovators and, and creators coming through. And, like, Jay Rife founded that company. Julie, I think, still runs it. Um, they've been yeah. doing fantastic things for a long time. And uh, they're all just family businesses. It's not like we're all multi-million dollar corporations in the spearfishing world. So it's right. super cool. Salt and water make for a deadly combination when it comes to dive gear. That's why you need to visit oldmanblue.com.au. They use the finest in materials and they make stuff to last. They use a 316 marine grade stainless steel in their loops and they source their materials and make their own stuff right there in Western Australia. Catch bags, cray loops and more. Visit oldmanblue.com.au. Check it out. Equalizing problems can be something that derail you. Not today, my friend. Go to freedivingfamily.com. Check out the, either the Friends or an Advanced Friends or video or the Mouthful and Deep Friends or Equalization course at freedivingfamily.com. You can use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. These courses are put together by Adam Stern and a select team of, of, of legends. And to help you overcome different issues and help you perform better, and some of them are extremely relevant for freedive spearing. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. Last question before we head on out, Forrest. I know you've got to go. Um, with obstacles, like what are the things that hold you back at times maybe in your spearfishing? Um, and how do you sort of overcome them? Uh, time is my biggest obstacle. You know, I, I have so many passions and hobbies and my work is always outdoors anyway and so time management for me is i think what what the hardest thing for my spearfishing right it's like i have a saturday free okay what am i going to do am i going to turn up to the rugby pitch where my whole team is relying on me am i going to spend it with my kid who i don't get to see that much because i'm working so much or my wife am i going to go mushroom hunting because the the chanterelles are popping off in the area or am i going to go spearfishing you know and so it's like the thing is I have all these passions and all these hobbies and interests. And, uh, fortunately spearfishing is still very near the top of those. So it usually wins out almost any over almost anything else, including my family, probably more often than it should. But, um, it, uh, it's just the time management for me. That's tough. And, and I'm lucky because I've somehow found a way to incorporate spearfishing with my work. So 
two of my world records came from while I was on shoots and I took time off. Yeah. One in Madagascar and one in Mexico. Uh, Every shark week I've ever done, I've said, don't buy chum. I'll get the chum. And I go out and spearfish for mackerel or something like that as the chum as an excuse. So, um, you know, I've somehow managed to incorporate it into my work. So it never escapes me, but yeah, just the time management is the biggest hurdle. Do you find spearfishing like a, a sort of a, a practical mindful technique to help keep you sort of grounded? Uh, so I am the least sort of mindful person you'll ever meet in your life. And I think it's because I have a background in the sciences, but I've said this on, on my podcast, The Wild Times. I think I said this to Joe Rogan one time. It is the closest thing that I've ever come to meditation is spearfishing. I can absolutely, I, I won't say I can, I do without trying shut out the rest of the world when I'm spearfishing. I'm not thinking about work. I'm not thinking about grant proposals or writing treatments or the shoot that I have to leave on or even my family or anything. I'm just being when I'm spearfishing. I get to like shut it all out, listen to that crackle and pop of the ocean, you know, do this meditative sort of breathing as we all know about with free diving to hold your breath and go down deep. And it, it really does allow me to be like present and in the moment and enjoying the ocean way more so than like tracking through the bush or any of the other hobbies that I have. I'm always sort of, my mind's wandering. I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about other things. But when I'm spearfishing, I am in that moment. And I swear to God, that is, for me, that is the meditation that I need in order to not be a complete lunatic. And so thank God for spearfishing. (laughs) (laughs) Love it, Forrest. On that note, man, we're going to head on out. People can check out Wild Times podcast. They can search Forrest Galante. You come up everywhere. Um, Even if people (laughs) want to follow along like your Instagram, man, it's always popping. So is actually the Wild Times podcast. Um, Instagram is great to follow along with too. It's funny. Yeah, man, there's some real good engaging stuff. I like what you're doing. And I think if people like the humor from the Noob Spirit podcast, and wild times will just sit right in there well so um but really appreciate you making time for me today Forrest. um i've really had a ball and a blast uh can uh, pop you some questions my pleasure thanks for having me and i look forward to doing it again Hey guys, massive chat with uh, Forrest today. I really had an absolute ball and just want to thank him for coming on the show. It was uh, it was a super cool time and I really enjoyed just getting a chance to pick his brain and hear some of his crazy stories. He loves to tell a story, as you could tell. So uh, massive thanks to Forrest Galante. Check out his podcast, The Wild Times Podcast. Um, some really good laughs on there. And um, hey, if you are coming back, let me tell you about the next fantastic interview dropping in one week's time on the News Fair Podcast. It's Will Brunker the founder of Aquagat, which is a funky handcrafted bespoke, dare I say it, uh, spear gun manufacturer operating out of Sydney. This guy has a really cool Instagram channel. If you check him out, Aquagat, I think, is spear guns. Um, And then sort of have a look through what he's been doing because you might really enjoy this next chat I've got coming up. Dropping in one week's time, Will Brunker. See me then. Um, Also, Again, same as at the start of the show, I just want to give a shout out to the 50 patrons powering the New Spiro podcast. Episode by episode, these guys are supporting the show. I really appreciate it. If you want to do the same, go to patreon.com forward slash noobspiro. Another way to give is to go to noobspiro.com and head up into the give back menu in the buy us a beer page. A couple of different ways to support the podcast there. But hey guys, I hope you are loving life, enjoying your spearfishing and getting out amongst it as much as you can and being safe while you do so. As for me, uh, 
I have been we've been we've had flooded flooding here in Brisbane. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out. The last time I got wet was to teach a freediving course, which I'm very much enjoying doing. And uh, yeah, so hey, see you in one week's time. Will Brunker, Acrogat, as for me, boom, Shrek out. The Noob Zero Podcast is incredibly proud to be partnering with Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. It's the very best in spearing gear from around the planet. Neptonics is also the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing gear, particularly in the US. They've got free shipping on all orders over $99 in the US. Furthermore, you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off on your entire shopping basket at Neptonics.com. Use the code NOOBSPEAR at Neptonics.com. Today's episode was an absolute banger. And so is our major sponsor, Adreno. Visit them at adreno.com.au. They have a huge range of equipment. You can find it at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpirit checkout when you shop online. You can save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can even use that code in store at some of their huge mega stores Australia wide. Price be guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Again, visit them at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpirit.